Church in action. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. We start a new series today, and it's going to run through the whole month of August. So I want to encourage you to come back, invite somebody to come with you. Uh, what is the church about? What is the church supposed to be doing? What are the actions that we're supposed to be taking? I don't know about you, but I like action-based events. I like fast-paced, high energy. I can watch people do those kind of things for a while, and then pretty soon I want to go do them. I don't want to just sit and watch anymore. So I like action. I like things that are fast-paced and fast-moving. And when you think about the church, oftentimes I don't know if you think of the church in that way. Do you think of the church as being part of action, God's action in the world today? When you think about action, the opposite of action is non-movement. It's inactivity. It's unresponsiveness. Well, the church is never intended by God to be inactive or unresponsive or not moving. We're always supposed to be moving according to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so when you think about the last 18 months, where we've come from, not just our church, but churches in general, we've had a lot of inactivity. And it hasn't been our choice. It's just what's happened with the COVID virus and all the things that have been a result of that. But we're coming out of that hopefully now, hopefully we are, and, and we want to get back to being who we are supposed to be. And so over the next few weeks, I want us to look at particularly four different actions of the church. Now, you know, the book of Acts is appropriately named. It is the acts or the actions of the first Christians. And I love that. It's a great book. We spent a couple of years ago, a whole year going through the book of Acts. So I don't intend to do an exhaustive study for 52 weeks of the book of Acts. Uh, hopefully we'll have a pastor before then anyway, and it won't be me. But anyway, so what I do want to do is take the next four weeks, though, and look at four specific actions that are especially relevant for us Marbley Baptist Church for the days ahead as, as we head into the days ahead that God has for us. So, um, so this morning, what I want to do is kind of lay out an introduction for you. Anytime I do a new series, what I like to do in the first sermon is present some principles that are going to be true throughout the next four sermons. And I may remind you of those. I probably will, what the principles are that we're going to talk about today, because they're eternal truth. They're going to be true from now on. So uh, they're going to help us even apply these different actions to our life as we go forward. So this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, uh, and we're going to read a few verses together. And this is Jesus and the interaction that he had with his disciples. It's really the first mention of the church in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for God and his word. And you can read in your copy of God's word or on the screen there. I'll read aloud here, beginning in Matthew 16 and verse 13. We're going to read through verse 19. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but by my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Thank you this morning. You can be seated. So when we look at this passage of Scripture, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of uh, meaning in these words as Jesus interacts with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And it's not an unfamiliar passage, but to me this morning, there are three reasons. We talk about 
the church taking action. Today I titled the sermon, The Church Acts. We do act. I don't mean we pretend. I mean we take action. That's who we are. But we do so based on three reasons Jesus gives in this passage this morning. And so the first of these that I want to call your attention to is the church acts, first of all, because Jesus says our foundation is solid. He says, on this rock I will build my church. Well, you guys know that when you're going to build something, the most important stage, one of the most important stages is what you do with the foundation and what the foundation is actually built on. What kind of soil is it built on? I don't know if you uh, guys will remember, some of you were here then. When we built Elevation, um, we didn't used to own the track of land that Elevation sits on. In fact, that triangle where that concrete road is over to the loop, it's kind of a triangle, was owned by somebody else here in town. In fact, we bought most of the parcels of land that make up our campus at different times. But that was a piece of property we didn't own, but we wanted to own. And the man who owned it, I think, was planning to put an auto repair shop in there or something like that. And he changed his mind, but he had, this whole area was covered in pine trees. This was just a forest out here. And so that whole front lot out there was just a wooded lot. And at some point in his design of what he was going to build, they cut all the trees down and dug all the stumps up and pushed them all to the end of that property and buried them. And everybody kind of forgot they were there. One day I was on a mission trip. I came home from the mission trip, and the building committee said, hey, we're going to move elevation. It was originally designed to be on the back part of our property, kind of where our sports fields are. Nobody would have ever seen it back there. I think that's kind of why they wanted to put us back there. But the reality is, he said, look, we've thought about it, and uh, you know we've been able to purchase this land up here, and so we want to put elevation right on the front of our property. And I was like, that's awesome. People will see it when they drive by. That's great. I love it. Okay? So they started doing work, and the first thing they had to do before they dig the foundation is take core samples. They drill down and they pull out all this, this sample of what's under there and they see all the different strata of what's under there and what they discovered is what was under there was a bunch of old pine trees. <laughs> and pine trees are great to build with but not necessarily great to build on. And so it's over time they rot and they deteriorate and they decompose and everything kind of settles down. So they didn't, we didn't know that when we were going to build the, the building over there. So they had to dig every bit of that stuff out. I mean it was the biggest pit they dug out. All that junk and they came back and filled it all back up with good, solid soil so the foundation would be solid. You guys know that. Your building that you're building, whether it's a house or whatever it is, it's only as good as the foundation. Well, Jesus here says the same thing. He says, I'm going to build my church on the rock. And there's a lot of debate about what he meant when he said the rock. Who's he talking about? Some people believe that he was talking about Peter. Because Peter really isn't Simon's real name. That's not his birth name. His birth name was Simon, Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. But Jesus renamed him Peter, which means rock. So was he saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter? That's what Roman Catholics believe, not necessarily what we believe. Now, let me tell you the difference. And you have to understand the original language a little bit, so bear with me. It's a little technical. That The word for Peter here is Petros, and it means little rock pebble it's not a slam it's not an insult but jesus says peter little rock i'm going to build my church on petra that's a different word it means similar thing but it means massive rock well that's what you would want to hope and believe that the church is built on right something massive and sturdy and solid and that's exactly what he's saying so some people believe that peter was the rock but let me ask you a question knowing what you know about peter do you think G Peter would be a solid foundation for the church? No. 
I don't. Now, if you read commentators, they'll tell you that some believe that Peter is the rock that he's referring to here. Some people believe it wasn't Peter. Some believe that Jesus was saying the rock is Peter's confession. What was his confession? That Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do people say that I am? Disciples? Well, a lot of people say you're one of the prophets. You know, people still say that about Jesus. And, and, and Jesus' identity is the most important question, I think, ever in the history of the world. Who is Jesus Christ? Because C.S. Lewis got it right. He was either a con man, he was Christ, or he was crazy. It's one of those three options. That's it. So people said, well, you're a prophet. You're religious. You do things. You're smart. You say things. You teach with authority. So you have to be one of the prophets. And then he narrowed it down and said, well, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're God's promised Messiah. Exactly. And Jesus goes on to say that that's a result, Peter. You know that because that's a result of divine revelation in your life. Blessed are you, he said, because that wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says this. We didn't read this verse last week, but this is what Paul said. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So when someone comes to the place in their life where they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is God's only Son, they do that because God has revealed that to them. Now, we can talk to them about apologetics and give them reasons why we believe that, but the Holy Spirit has to do a work in a person's life before they come to the place where they believe the right thing about him. And that's what's happened in Peter's life. So Jesus commends him. What we believe about Jesus is essential. But is that what the church is built on, Peter's confession? If you, if you study church history at all, what you'll understand is that the church's confessions over time have changed. Not our church, but church, big C. Christians who've gathered themselves all over the world over time, sometimes their confessions change. Is that what Jesus is saying the, the church is to be built on? If it's changing? No, because the foundation is solid. I believe that the foundation is Jesus himself. I believe he was saying, Peter, you're part of the church, little rock, but I am the rock. And I say that based on other scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, according to the grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. Now this is pretty clear, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid that foundation is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, I'm the rock. The church is built on me. That is a solid foundation. And that's important. We're talking about the church taking action. And I said to begin with that the reason uh, that the church can take action, the first reason is because this, our foundation's solid. We don't have to worry about our foundation. Our foundation is solid. It's Jesus Christ. I love what the hymnist said. He said, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand, but not Jesus. Jesus is the solid rock of our faith. Now you think about it. If your foundation is insecure, then it, it tends to produce a lack of security in you, a sense of uh, not having confidence. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about this. When I was growing up over in Tyler, um, the city of Tyler decided to build a softball complex. Some of you are familiar with Tyler, and I had a guy come to me after the last service. He said, oh yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So I started playing softball when I was like 12 or something, church softball, and we would drive. It was, it was completely on the other side of town from where I live, so it took about 30, 45 minutes to get over there. And I asked my dad one night, I said, Dad, why in the world did they build this softball field way out here away from civilization like this? He goes, well, it's built on the old city dump. 
was like, Dad, I'm 12, and I'm pretty sure that's a bad idea, you know. They built the softball fields on top of the city dump. Yeah. So after about a year or two, the road that led out there was like a roller. No kidding. It was fun. It was like the whoop de doos you know. It was like a roller coaster. I'd say, Mom, speed up. This is cool. You know, and she'd be like, stop it. Well, here's the thing. You could be running across the softball field in the outfield going for a ball, and you might step in a hole that sunk up to your knee because that ground underneath that softball field was constantly settling as it decomposed. So they would come in every year, and they'd add dirt to the fields, and you'd be like, that's fresh dirt. I don't know if that's okay to step on or not, you know. I might sink up to my knee. I don't know what's going to happen here. So when the foundation isn't solid, you can't have any confidence. But the opposite is true for us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can know and have great confidence because Jesus is saying our foundation is solid. No question about it. I remember uh, about 28 years ago, I was watching the World Series. I think it was 89. And I was, the World Series was getting ready to start. The San, Francisco, the San Francisco Giants were getting ready to play the Oakland A's in San Francisco. And I was sitting there watching on the TV and getting, eating dinner. And all of a sudden, the TV goes all squiggly. And all of a sudden, the game was off. And I was like slapping the TV. That's what you used to do. Slap the TV. Didn't do any good. And all of a sudden, the news network came back on. And they were like, we're sorry for the interruption, but apparently something's happened out in San Francisco. Well, the, they began to report that there was an earthquake, a massive earthquake. And bridges fell down and buildings fell down. And you guys remember Peter Jennings? He was a correspondent for ABC, did the nightly news. And he interviewed this guy who was a, just a man on the street. I remember this. I'll never forget what the guy said. He goes, what was it like when the earth started shaking? Because you watch video of that thing, and it's just like crazy. And he said, here's the deal. When the earth under your feet moves, nothing is solid anymore. Some of you lived through earthquakes. We don't have them around here, thankfully, but some of you have lived through that. And you know that when the ground under your feet moves, it's like, what is solid around here? <laughs> For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we know that the church is solid. The foundation of the church is solid, and it gives us confidence to act because of what Jesus has done for us. So not only do we have confidence to act because the church, our foundation is solid, but secondly this morning, we can act in confidence because our future is secure. Jesus says here that the gates of hell will not overpower the church. How many times in your life have you taken great confidence and great peace from that verse to know that? Because that's a promise from Jesus. We know that the gates of hell, we know that the attacks of the enemy are there. They're constant. We have an enemy. The Bible makes that very clear. But he says you don't have to be insecure about your future. Think about it. Some of you in your life, unfortunately, have experienced somebody who didn't like you, somebody you would call your enemy, and maybe they were out to get you, and they were constantly working behind the scenes to kind of get to you. And that is a very insecure place to be when you have to worry all the time about who's coming to get you next and what they're going to do to you. And some people approach Christianity like that. Well, I'm worried about the devil. The devil's living under every rock. He's behind every corner. He's trying to get me. He is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. The Bible says that. But he says here, Jesus says, the founder and builder of the church, that not only is our foundation solid, but our future is secure. You don't have to worry about him overpowering you. Yeah, he has some success with us, but he doesn't have ultimate success. So what does it mean, this idea of the gates of hell? Well, in Jesus' time, every city was built behind a wall. That was the only way they had to secure themselves. So they built a, a tall wall all around their cities, very common. And the only way to get into those cities was through certain entrances, and there weren't a ton of entrances. And those entrances were usually barricaded with gates. So anytime somebody entered the city or left the city, they had to go through one of those gates. So as you can imagine, as people traveled in and out of the city to go out in the fields and work their crops and do whatever, 
the gates became a very popular place for people to congregate. So they became the centers for like the judicial system in their city. The people who were judges or rulers would sit in the city gates and they would make their decisions. Or uh, if people wanted to hear the latest news or the latest gossip about what was going on, they would sit in the city gate, somewhere around the gate where people were coming and going. People who wanted to do business would set up their goods and their markets right there at the city gate because that's where all the traffic was. So what Jesus is saying is the gates, the decisions, the councils, the schemes of the devil, of hell itself, will not overpower you. That's what he's saying. That's good news this morning for those of us who are part of the church because we don't have to live in constant insecurity. We know that Jesus has promised that our future is secure. So what would happen? What would happen in our world, in America, in Longview, Texas, is suddenly the government decided to revoke our tax exempt status as a church. And all of a sudden we had to start paying taxes. Would that threaten our security? Or threaten our future? What if beyond that, what if the government came in and said, you know what, the church is guilty of hate speech? You guys get up and say things that we disagree with as a government, so we're gonna confiscate your buildings, your land, your bank accounts, you're no more, you don't exist. That happens in other countries. What if that happened here? Would that threaten our security? Is our future still secure? What if, in, God forbid this ever happens, but what if in America Christianity became illegal? You can't profess Christ without going to jail. You lose your 401k, you lose your house, your land, all the stuff you save, your retirement account, gone, done. They just confiscate it. What would happen? Would our future be insecure? See, I said a minute ago that, that Satan ultimately cannot overpower us, but there are temporary victories that he has against people. And some people decide when those things happen, they're going to denounce their faith. Is there anything, anything that could cause you to denounce your faith in Jesus Christ? Anything. I hope we don't live through that here. I hope none of us ever experience that. But what if that happened? Would the gates of hell be able to prevail in your life and overpower you? No. We're not unaware of the devil's schemes. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9-11. through 11. It says, I wrote for you, this is Paul writing, I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For I have, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. And that word ignorant is the same word we talked about last week, agnoia. The word for agnostic. He's saying we're not agnostics when it comes to the devil's schemes in our life. You're aware of the devil's schemes in your life. I am too. I know how he tends to attack me. He's very uncreative. He comes back with the same two or three things every time. But the reality is even though he can attack, I don't have to live in fear of him. I don't have to worry about him, and you don't either. I can act according to the will of God, and you can too, because I know ultimately my future is secure, and yours is too. Your immediate future, who knows? But your ultimate future is completely secure in Jesus Christ. And so we talk about that and celebrate that. Jesus uh, gives us the reason, reason, the right to do that. Paul said this in Romans 8, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Well, Satan's against us. Hell is against us. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And what Paul's saying basically is, if God's for you, what does it matter who's against you? Because he can't ultimately touch you. He can't ultimately have victory in your life. So we don't act in fear. We don't live in insecurity because our foundation is solid. 
and our future is secure. We can act because those two things are true. And the last thing is this this morning. We can act also because our function is significant. What am I talking about? Well, this is the verse that everybody has trouble with in this passage, verse 19, where he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And, and people go, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. Do you remember the first time that you ever got a key? Maybe you were a kid and your parents gave you a key to your house. They trusted you with that key because that key meant that all of a sudden you could come and go whenever you wanted, right? Or maybe your boss gave you a key to the business because the key means ultimate and significant responsibility. Somebody gives you a key to a car. That's fun. Remember that first key to that first car? Remember the driver's license? Man, I got in my truck. I drove for three hours by myself. I was like, I'm free, <laughs> you know? That key was the key to that freedom. So the key is significant because the key means significant responsibility. Now, uh, sometimes when we would hire interns in our youth ministry, we would always have, and I think they still do this, I'd still have, uh, we'd have the key talk, right? I'm going to give you this key. I'm going to tell you what this key represents, okay? So I'm giving you the key. That doesn't mean that the building belongs to you now. It's not your building. It's God's building. So it doesn't mean that you can bring a date up here and call this a date. It doesn't mean that you can invite all your friends up here and have a party after hours or something. This is not your building, and this is just your key because you work here. You have to be responsible with this key. There was a kid in my youth ministry in Weatherford, I went to the church one night. It was the night before a mission trip, and I get up to the church parking lot, and I, it's about 930. I'd forgotten something. I was going to grab something off my desk, and I get up to the parking lot, and there's all these cars in the church parking lot. And I recognize them. They're all kids' cars from the youth group. And I see the one car that belongs to my intern. And I'm going, okay, something's up. 930 at night, night before a mission trip. There's nothing going on up here. There's not supposed to be anybody up here. But my intern has a key to the church. So I go up to the church door, and I unlock it, open the doors, and immediately this music is just blaring. And it's, it's Christian music, but it is super loud. And I'm like, that idiot is blaring music through the sound system in the sanctuary. So I go down the hall to the sanctuary, and the lights are all off in the church. There's no lights on anywhere. I, I look in the worship center. I'm like, there's nobody in here. The music's blaring. They're going to blow the speakers out. I, what's going on? So I start down the hallway, and this kid comes around the corner, sees me, and tries to run. I said, whoa, 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 come here, come here. And I flipped the light on. And when I flipped the light on, I realized that all over the floor, the carpet, were these little plastic discs. Because back then, kids had these little plastic disc guns, and they would shoot each other with them, like before Airsoft. I know, it's dumb. But they were playing this game where they shoot each other, and they were all over the church. And I saw them in the worship center. I turned the lights on. They're all in the worship center, all over the floor, all over the seats, everything. Which, I mean, you can clean them up, but I'm like, where's Mark? And he's like, I don't know. He's hiding somewhere. And I was like, he better be hiding somewhere. Why do we ever give him a key, right? So I always tell that horror story to any intern we give a key to because when you give somebody a key, what you're saying is you are responsible with what you do with this key. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you, my church, the keys to the kingdom. What? He's going to trust us with the kingdom of God? That's exactly what he's done. He's trusted the church with his kingdom. That is a huge, significant responsibility that we have. What does that mean? Well, he talks about this idea here where he says the idea of loosing or binding. Now, that's a kind of a, rabbin a rabbinical term because 
the rabbis have the authority, because it's also not just responsibility, but it's also significant authority that it represents, because the rabbis had a chance to say to people, you can do this, but you can't do this. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today and you try to go up on the Temple Mount, as a Christian, you can do that. But if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would be forbidden by the rabbis to go up on the Temple Mount because there's not a temple there anymore. There's a mosque there now, and it's considered desecrated, unholy. So there's a big sign. There's a couple of signs that say, by order of rabbi so-and-so, you are not allowed to enter the Temple Mount if you're an Orthodox Jew. And they don't. They follow the order. Is that order anywhere in the Bible? No. What it means is that they had the power to prohibit or allow, to bind or to loose. That's what the idea is. Very common idea in Judaism. We're sort of like it's a foreign idea to us. So think about what Jesus is saying about his church because this is where we take action. This is the first place he talks about us taking action. He gives us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he says that we have responsibility, but we also have authority. So I mentioned a second ago that over the years in church history, you'll see that the church's confessions sometimes changed. So did their gospel. In fact, there are a lot of different gospels out there. There's only one true gospel. The Bible is very clear about that. The gospel is when someone gives their life to Jesus Christ and they put their trust in Jesus Christ because he is the Savior of the world and they ask him to come into their life and forgive them and save them, and he does that. That's the gospel. It's good news. It's free. It's a gift. But over the years, churches have changed what the gospel means. And it's very dangerous because when they've done that, they've represented to people, well, you can be accepted by God, but you can't. Or you have to do this or you not do this, prohibiting and allowing. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you a great authority and a great responsibility with the gospel, with truth. Right? And when we think about what our role is, what our function is, it is very significant. I don't know how you think about the church and the world. Do you think, well, the church is just sort of over here, here's the world, and here's the world system, and here's all the people that are important, all the influencers, and then the church is just over here on the side, sort of doing their own little thing in their little Christian bubble. Is that how you think of the church? That's not how Jesus thinks of the church. He says the church has significant responsibility and authority in the world. In fact, Jesus goes on to say this, and it's a passage that you're very familiar with. He says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all authority, okay? Therefore, go. Because that's true, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember that I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has ultimate authority. What gives you and me the right to go to some other nation and tell them that what they believe is wrong? That they don't believe the gospel. What gives us the right to go tell somebody in Africa, for example, that they need Jesus? Jesus gives us that authority. We go because he has all authority, heaven and earth. So we have a significant function. This is exciting, y'all, because this is our role in the world that we live in. Think of it this way. If the church ceases to express and tell eternal truth, who in our culture will do that? Who else is given that responsibility? Not Congress. Not the people you elect into office. That's not their job. Some of them believe that, and they represent Christ in that way, but that's not their job. Whose role is it? Whose functionality is it in the culture? It's ours. And I said last week that Jesus is sovereign. God is sovereign. He, gives, he has complete control, and then he gives you a little control. He gives me a little control. And here we're seeing that he's giving his church a lot of control. 
So we're responsible. We have authority from him to share the gospel. That's why I don't ever want to do anything to get in the way of somebody coming to Christ. Because if I share the gospel in the wrong way, that person might miss eternity. It's a big deal. It's a huge responsibility. It's the keys to the kingdom that he's given us. So I want you to let that sink in this morning because we live in a world that doesn't think the church is very important. But that's not what Jesus says about his church. He says our function is incredibly significant in the world. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the ways that God has called us to act in this generation. I think we suffer today from a bit of an inferiority complex. We just think we're supposed to work in our little bubble over here. No, he says, get in there. Be salt. You're salt and light. Go intermix with the culture. Find out who people are. Talk to them about the truth. Share with them about eternal things because nobody else will. And you have the keys. <laughs> you have the keys. And I have the keys to the kingdom. So our role in the culture is irreplaceable. One of the things that frustrates me so much is we hear so much on social media and other media. Somebody wants to ask an opinion about a different way of life. Maybe it's the same sex thing or maybe it's gender confusion or identity or all these things that we see all around us going, what in the world is, are people talking about now? What kind of crazy ideas are people even living now? And you hear all these experts who've been to college and they've been to these grad schools and they're educated, they've read it, what everybody else thinks about it, and nobody stands there and represents God. And if they do, they get made fun of completely, right? But God's the only one who knows how we were supposed to be, how we were created. He's the only one, and he's the one we all ignore as a culture. Our role as a church is to represent him. Our role as a church is to speak for him regardless of what it costs us. So in the days ahead, I want to encourage you to be here and think about these principles. Our, our foundation is solid, our future is secure, and our function is significant. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that we function. So the reality is this. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot be saved by being good, by attending church. None of that will do it. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know, I've never met anybody who denied that when they were honest. We all know we've sinned. We all know we've offended God. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But this is the good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. This morning, I want to give you a chance to do that. I want to give you a chance to receive the greatest gift that anybody's ever given anybody else, and that's eternal life. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. You guys that are watching online, this is for you as well. Don't check out. If you'd like to receive Christ today and know that your eternity is changed forever, begin a relationship with God that changes your life, that lasts forever, then it's a gift to you today. You believe, like Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then you believe correctly. Now put your trust in him. Now give him your life. Trust him with your life, and he'll save you. It's a great promise. So this morning, would you like to have all your sin forgiven? I mean, start your life over right now and be forgiven. And your sin, the power of your sin to separate you from God, be eradicated completely where you could never be separated from God again. This morning, that is a gift that's being offered to you, and I'm so glad to get to share that with you. So if you'd like to receive Christ today, nobody looking around but me, please, you pray if you're a believer already. Then if that's you this morning, you say, I want Christ in my life, would you just slip your hand up? And I see you, and no one sees you but me and God, that's okay. It's not anything to be ashamed of. It's a great decision, the greatest decision you'll ever make. 
If you've got your hand up, or if you raise your hand, I want to leave you through what the Bible says is calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to leave you through a time of actually just calling on the name of the Lord. So you can just say this to God, dear God in heaven, he knows your heart, he knows if you're sincere, just say that, dear God in heaven, I want to be saved this morning. I want Jesus to come into my life and forgive me. I'm so sorry for all the sin in my life. I'm sorry for all the ways I've offended you. I don't want sin anymore. I reject it. I want Jesus more than anything else. I want to be saved. God, help me now to walk in a way that honors you and love you with my whole heart. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.